0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Technology Report, sponsored by General Motors Defense. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Joining us today is Dr. Victoria Coleman, the 37th Chief Scientist of the United States Air Force. She's also a former director of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency and spent a career as a pioneering engineer and technologist over the decades developing developing breakthrough mobile devices and technologies during her 10 years at Hewlett-Packard, Nokia, Samsung, and much more. She is also one of the contributors to her predecessor, Dr. Richard Joseph's 2030 uh, technology vision for the United States Air Force that was pre- uh, prepared by the Scientific Advisory Board. Dr. Coleman, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. I'm really, really pleased to have the opportunity to speak with you today, Avago.
0: An absolute pleasure, uh, indeed. A lot of ground uh, to cover, and we appreciate how busy you are and, and joining us, especially uh, to coincide with the uh, Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber. Uh, conference and trade show, which is uh, a really, really uh, an honor. And and it's great to be able to meet at least in some capacity in person uh, this year after, unfortunately, the pandemic. Before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, our weekly cyber report and cyber coverage are sponsored by Northrop Grumman, and FinContieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. You became chief scientist, Dr. Coleman, in April. Uh, we have a new secretary uh, in uh, the former Frank Kendall, a relatively new chief, and General C.Q. Brown, who's been on the job about a year. Uh, this is among the most change-minded leaders we've had uh, in decades in the United States Air Force. There is enormous urgency. We know that uh, when uh, uh, Secretary Kendall came on the job, the drive was let's get better focused on China. That's been something that uh, CQ Brown has been working to drive innovation cycles faster, uh, including cultural uh, change. Right, one of the things that the the chief has been driving is. Move faster. If you see problems, fix them. Don't, you know, inform your superiors. Don't necessarily wait for permission uh, to do that. From your standpoint, as somebody who is advising leadership, what are the priorities in helping drive and give purpose and shape to change at a time when there is a lot of change needed, but also a lot of possible courses? So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge. What's what, what are your priorities as you go through this?
1: So you know the, the the priorities really are you know are set by the leadership as you um, you know as you just uh, identified and our leadership uh, is uh, is quite unique. I mean it it is a um, a very interesting alignment of the stars here. And uh, um, if I may brag for a moment, I think this is truly the A team. Uh, we just have an incredible leadership team inside of the Air Force right now. Um, you know, uh, Gerald Brown has made it a priority. Um, you know, to um, to to move faster, as you as you pointed out. So you know, within um, here at the fourth floor in the Pentagon, um, accelerate, change or lose is kind of the message that we all carry in our heads. You know, as we do our uh, as we do our work, um, and that, of course, uh, you know, applies as you pointed out to uh, to what we do. Um, so for the chief scientist. Um, you know the, the, the challenge is to understand both the um, you know the needs of the department but also to figure out how to help leadership to execute these changes in, in a way that um, is constructive um, and hopefully helpful um, so, you know, how do you decide priorities? So, you know, I came in here, you know, knowing a little bit about the Air Force, but honestly, you know, I, I, I spent my first quarter or so here learning about the, you know, the complex um, machine, you know, the Air Force, the Department of the Air Force is 750,000 people. We now have two uh, services. Um, as you know, we have the Space Force as well as the Air Force. So there's been um, really a great deal of change. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you have to take it back to, um, to the key capabilities that the Air Force uh, needs to deliver. Um, what are they? Well, they are connecting the joint force um, where really decision superiority matters, uh, generating combat power, um, where, we, you know, where we project a superior mass of resilient and decisive domain agnostic effects. Um, and then finally, to do any of these things, we need to be able to conduct logistics under attack. Um, so, you know, if, if you take these as the, as the top priorities, then, you know, you, you can begin to peel back the kinds of things that technology can bring to the table. Um, in, and, and not only you know, what technology can do, but also figuring out ways to enable technology to have those effects, right? Because having a technology and having it used to solve a problem are not the same, um, they're not the same conversation. So here in our office, uh, we started thinking about two sets of um, kind of initiatives to, 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 to try and make a contribution. One in the space of technology, and the other one in the space of how do we incorporate technology faster in our systems so that we um, actually affect outcomes. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters. And if I can just, you know, state something that I think you'll agree with me, Vago, is, you know, in in, in our country, you know, and in our system, our, in our defense, uh, innovation system, we have no lack of uh, invention. What we have is, um, you know, the, the you know, Significant obstacles to translating that invention into um, deployed innovation at speed, um, you know, and, and that's something that I, uh, I'm sure that you know, uh, many of the people that uh, that you speak to uh, recognize and uh, and try to work um, to find solutions to. So that's you a, know. That-
0: I was going to say that's that's absolutely the case, and I want to take you uh, to the concept which you've endorsed, which was in the 2030 report on the on the need for the United States Air Force to have a chief technology officer to a, be able to take ideas and, and transform them into capabilities. Because as you're, you know, I mean, in, in fact, I would say that our system, the, the good part of our system uh, is that there is robust innovation across a wide, um, you know, virtually across every organization because innovation has become the buzzword but there's also duplication of effort. And at some point you have to translate the idea into a, a deliverable capability. I wanted to ask you in terms of technological areas, you know, we tend to lump everything into giant groups, right? Uh, connectivity is, is one big issue. Then we talk about hypersonics and AI and quantum and uh, microelectronics where you're, uh, you have enormous expertise and have been advising the department as well. I know you worked with Dr. Mark Lewis when he was in the department on microelectronics which was one of his priorities as well. What, what are the priorities from your standpoint, what are the breakthrough areas as a technologist that you think the department should be focused on? Because a lot of this is actually going to come from the commercial side that's moving to develop it. So the whole question is rapid adaptation of something that may already be invented as opposed to reinventing the wheel on your own.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, 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 you know, and again, you know, go, going back to the you know the key capabilities that the Air Force needs to generate, well, you know, connectedness, you know, being able to kind of work together during the mission, that's a big deal, right? So, and, and that's where our um, advanced battle management system um, is, um, is, is aimed to, uh, to, to producing a solution for us. So, you know, in terms of priorities for, for our office and for the department, ABMS is one of these, these key uh, priorities, allowing you to, to create connectedness in the battlefield during the mission, you know, uh, 24 by seven, any, any place in the world. Uh, it's an extremely challenging, um, you know, proposition, but also it's one that I think holds a ton of promise because to your point, many of the technologies that we would need in order to, um, to, to build such a system actually, you know, will come uh, from the outside. Many of them actually already exist on the outside. It's a question of how do we uh, pull them together to, to solve uh, for our mission? And, you know, in one thing that I, you know, I will say, um, you know, um, Secretary Kendall, you know, having a um, clear eye view about what the world outside is capable of uh, of doing is actually encouraging us to think about, you know, not putting out, um, you know, questions to uh, to to the deep to the the industrial base um, on, you know, sound bites. Almost, he's asking us to pose the whole question. And have them use their brilliance on the outside to come back and say, well, you know, if you want connectedness inside of the the battlefield, these are the things that we think are possible. Um, And I think that's a very interesting approach, by the way. So the ABMS is definitely um, such um, such a priority area. Um the other one that I, I say that, you know, for me, as a capability is critical is what, you know, DARPA, what DARPA calls mosaic uh, warfare. And this is a, you know, this is a concept that evolved over the last, you know, uh, five or six years, both at DARPA, but also um, by, um, by folks like Dan Pat and um, David Iptula over at the Mitchell Institute, where, you know, we think about, generating you know force packages and, and missions just in time being able to, to rapidly compose um you know uh, systems assets people and going off and fighting a mission with exactly what you need at the right time um, and that you know that philosophy i think is really important for getting us not only what we need at the battle at the right time but also it's accelerating things why because it's compositional it means that you don't have to develop everything at once right if you have uh, assets, um, you know, on, on the shelf, you can rapidly compose them. And then if you take that philosophy, you know, all the way to the, how we build systems, you know, that's how you get away from spending 20, 30 years building a platform, right? If you think of them as composable systems where, you know, you can rapidly put them together and also rapidly change them when you have to, um, I think that's how you begin to accelerate change. Um, you know, I, I it's it's kind of an interesting um, you know um, factoid and i thought I, it might be good to to share it with you i was looking at this up uh, you know the other day um, between 1945 and 1974 the mean time to develop a new aircraft from program start to ioc to um, initial operational capability was 5 years 5 right then in 1975 Um, you know, the DoD 5000 series uh, was published. And since then, the IOC actually, the time to IOC has increased at the rate of approximately five years per decade. So like the F-18 took 11 years to get to uh, IOC. The B-2 took 16, the F-22 19. Um, So, you know, and and that's not a graph that has changed for the F-35 and so on. So, you know, when the chief says accelerate, change, or lose, that's what he's talking about. Um, and I think approaches like, you know, um, mosaic uh, ways of, of of constructing you know systems and missions really are about the only way that you can get there. Um, I don't know if that you know, makes any sense.
0: Uh, it, it makes enormous sense. And we should also give a shout out to Brian Clark. Uh, also uh, of Hudson, uh, who's worked with Dan very, very closely on these mosaic studies and has, has been a very frequent guest uh, of, of ours in general. Deptula has uh, been a, a frequent contributor as well. Um, you've argued uh, for a chief technology uh, officer. How does the job need to be structured to uh, more rapidly drive ideas into capabilities? Given, as you said, we have a tendency of being able to, you know, there are highly innovative commercial firms out there most of them are not all that crazy about doing business with the government in part because they feel it's a it's overly complicated to navigate and almost invariably involves participation with a heritage contractor and once that happens there's is, there is a concern even though these are extremely competent and capable uh, engineering companies in their own right that it has a tendency of actually bogging down technology it, it gets much more complicated, it gets combined with legacy systems and what threatens, you know, individual interest. I mean, that's true for any commercial enterprise. So how does the CTO work and how do you move more quickly to take these innovative ideas and actually realize them in operationally relevant timeframes, right? Developing a new aircraft in five years is a lot better than developing a new aircraft. I mean, the joke about F-35, I mean, sadly, because it is the folded gap requirement at base when it was born is the thirty-five stands for thirty-five years to realize it, which I think we can agree is a suboptimal outcome. Without any disrespect uh, to uh, to uh, General Fick and the whole F thirty-five team,
1: I think you're asking two uh, separate but uh, related questions. Right. So, so um, if we if we just talk about uh, the uh, the pipeline for a moment, I think that's kind of um, I think it, it's really interesting and it's illuminating to see. Um, how the world outside deals with that. So you know, so somebody uh, somewhere has an idea about using I don't know using a, a piece of glass as a keyboard, right? That's an idea. From taking that idea to making you know a performant iPhone that um, you know made keyboards obsolete. You know that was like the idea was ten percent. Ninety percent is um, you know you sweat blood and neck, you know in uh, tears to uh, to get you there. Um, and it's also interesting to observe what, you know, what are the stages, you know, how, so how does an Apple take a piece of glass and turn it, you know, turning into a, into a keyboard? Well, you know, there is a ton of disciplines that are involved that have evolved over the years. For example, um, product management. So, you know, in, in, in the commercial world, um the place where all the threads about what technology can do and what a customer actually needs, they get pulled together um, by one or more product managers who then generate, you know, um, uh, product plans, product roadmaps that create backlogs that the engineering teams start burning through and, you know, they deliver minimum viable products. So I said a bunch of things here. Of all these things that I just talked about, you know, the only thing that we have today inside of some parts of the Air Force and the establishment beyond that supports us is, um, you know, what people call uh, DevOps or DevSecOps, which is really the, you know, it's the vehicle through which you can do multiple software drops. Well, like what tells you what, what the software ought to be doing? And not only what it tells you what it should be doing now, but what should you do six months from now and a year from now, three years from now? We don't have product management. Um, we don't have, you know, this, uh, this concept of a minimum viable product. We try to build things by building features. And, you know, and in truth, you know, the only way to learn if something works or otherwise is to field something. So, you know, our motto in this office is build a little, test a little, field a little. Honestly, that's the only way that you can accelerate because you put something in the hands of the warfighter, that's, you know, that's where you learn what you actually need. So, you know, this process of trying to come up with a exquisite set of requirements and then somehow go off and build them and come back with uh, the perfect artifact. You know, that world does not exist. I mean, maybe it existed 30, 40 years ago in in, in my discipline, where we wrote, you know, pretty simple programs. It's no longer the case. But our processes inside uh, of the department in general, not just the Air Force, uh, have not kept up with that. And I think that is one of our Key kind of impediments to speed. Um, now, if I get, if I turn to your uh, CTO, um, sure uh, question. I was
0: about to ask you. So, where where do you, where do you fall on the whole CTO thing, and how it should be organized?
1: Well, so so I I, I gotta tell you that uh, I am kind of the guilty party over the, the CTO. Uh, as as you as you mentioned, you know, I had the privilege of working with uh, the, my my predecessor, Dr. Joseph, um, as we are pulling together the. Um, uh, the, uh, what became the ST strategy, the 2030 ST strategy. And kind of six months into that, I remember being in a meeting uh, down in Albuquerque um, in Kirtland Air Force Base. And, you know, w- w- we had a, an executive review panel that had many luminaries from the department and, and industry and we were debating some point. And, and at some point, you know, I, I just became really frustrated, which is very unusual for me, not people that know me. And I said, well... <laughs> who is the CTO of the Air Force? (laughs) And everybody looked around the room and they said, well, we don't have one. And and that kind of struck me as really odd because, uh, you know, I mean, I was a CTO before. I worked for CTOs. You know, the business of a CTO is to create options, for the department, for the company that they work in. It's the place where, you know, the technical community finds a home. It's the place where, you, you know, you, you do uh, kind of both research and development. It's where you, you know, what really you generate business options. Well, you know, we, we don't have that inside of the, um, of the Air Force. And that means that, you know, while we do incredibly uh, advanced and good work, you know, if you look at our the way that we manage our uh, technology um, kind of, you know, development and, and evolution, it's kind of fragmented. Um, it's um, complicated. And because of that, it also has gaps. And let me just right. um, offer one, one gap as an example. Um, take mosaic warfare. We talked about it uh, for a moment. Or take an area like digital engineering. We all know it's important. You know, we know it can accelerate us. Well, like, who is, you know, you don't have a PEO for Mosaic. You don't have a PEO for digital engineering. Right. Where is it within the department that you can say, well, you know, Mosaic is a strategy that we want to embrace and we're going to bring this on board and we're going to do the following things. Where does that happen? We don't have such a place. Right. So this is why, um, I mean, I felt back then and I still feel today that it's really important to create that role Uh, And it's important to have it uh, report directly to the secretary, because, of course, you know, you can't do this without the, um, you know, the ultimate support of the leadership in, in the department.
0: I just want to uh, give a word from our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy, General Motors Defense, of course, uh, sponsors our technology coverage in this podcast series, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. So, Victoria, we've, we've ticked, that, <laughs> ticked each of those uh, boxes uh, uh, as well as it would happen with this conversation. Um, you know, you, you mentioned clarity and, and focus, right? I mean, if everything's important, nothing is important. And innovation is the name of the game. So all of these innov- you know, innovation organizations have sprouted up like topsy. Whether it's AFWorks, uh, you know, a little bit of it is happening in AFWIC uh, that's doing integration. You have AFRL. Uh, you have it across the Navy, right? You have Naval, Naval X and um, you know, and, and a number of other organizations that are all in the ideas uh, business and the new technology business and the thousand flowers bloom uh, business. But we're also being really redundant and wasteful. And so there's always room to have a competition of ideas. So you don't necessarily want single points of failure in your uh, d- you know, technology development ecosystem. On the other hand, you could also be wasting a lot of money reinventing the wheel. And in our case, we have a tendency of reinventing the wheel really frequently. And the whole idea of breaking up uh, Frank Kendall's old job in AT Acquisition Technology and Logistics into Acquisition and Sustainment and Research and Engineering was in order to be able to give some more clarity of purpose and focus. Um, what what's the push pull relationship between the Air Force Technology uh, and Research and Development community and R and E uh, and um, obviously uh, Dr. Shu is going to be doing that so that's you know positive because she's somebody who has acquisition experience as well as technology experience but how do we also work to make sure we're sharing technological lessons because i have to tell you as as we've talked before sometimes it's reporters and folks like me who become sort of the butterfly the cross-pollinating butterfly that's taking ideas that you think senior folks should know or a force should know and yet, they don't know that there's actually a really simple solution to what might be a vexing and expensive problem until somebody tells you that, right? So, how do we need to think about this whole structure and the role of the RE to make sure that it works right and works as efficiently as possible?
1: So, so or you know, effectively w- as possible? When, uh, so, so Vago, you will remember when uh, RNE was created, you know, one of the kind of uh, the bylines that uh, that folks were, were using to describe the position was that um, the, the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering would in fact be the CTO of the Department of Defense. Um, and, you know, what I've just told you about the need to have CTO inside of the Department of the Air Force completely and utterly applies, I think, uh, as a set of kind of missions for uh, RNE. So, I mean... I um, I was excited uh, to uh, to to see uh, the the creation uh, of the position. Um, I think it's also fair to say that um, as with all new things, there've been you know teething problems. Um, but I um, I think on uh, on the other hand, there has been you know for for the first time in a long time, there's been very specific focus on technologies that we need. Uh, that fall into this kind of general category that I was just describing. So, you know, the the you know the previous year, any um, Dr. Griffin had a um, had um, ten or eleven priority areas. Microelectronics being one of them. Where are places where you need to make you know advances as a holistic department versus you know just one uh, just one component. Um, So, you know, we've taken advantage of much of that, um, both in microelectronics where, for example, you know, we will offer requirements um, and, you know, they will go off and create a roadmap to deliver those requirements um, using both uh, commercial and special purpose parts. Uh, If you take uh, hypersonics, uh, the roadmaps for hypersonics, the whole strategy has been created uh, out, of, uh, out of R&E. And within that, you know, we'll find our own place uh, in, uh, in, in our own department of the Air Force. So I think that part has been working um, really well. Um, I, I, I do think that um, you know, we've not made enough progress on this pipeline that I was describing earlier. And, and one of the downsides, of course, of, of splitting at was that you know we took something that was inherently difficult, namely the passage of ideas from innovation to uh, to, you know, to 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 fill the capability, and we made it twice as hard because now you know we have created two separate organizations. Um, I I will say that one of the things that I'm really excited about is that um, you know the the, the new leadership, um, Secretary Austin and uh, uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks have. Um, Really, kind of pushed hard to create um, jointness um, inside of um, the, the the broader department as well as the Air Force. And the place, uh, the agent that they're using to do this is the um, uh, Innovation Steering Group that is run by uh, Badmishu by in, uh, in in RNE. One of the tools that they're using um, that we're very excited about are the radar. Um, um, uh, I guess, proposals, programs, um, well, they've set aside a significant amount of, of money that you know, basically they took out of the budgets of the individual departments and said, hey guys, go off and work together and come back and tell us, um, you know, what, um, what can you do together as a joint force? What technologies do you need to develop? What, uh, you know, what TTPs you need to develop as a joint force? Uh, and we will support that. And, you know, both the Air Force and the Space Force have been all over that. I mean, we're so excited. It was um, General Highnote out of the A5, A7 that has been leading that for us. Um, so, you know, R&E has uh, become really the, the nexus for where this um, kind of joint innovation, if you like, across the department is happening. And that's a very exciting place to be, I think
0: let me um, take you to uh, technology management. We've got a couple of minutes left, and I want to uh, ask you whether or not we have the right technology in the right places and whether the nation as a whole, right? I mean, the military and the, the entire uh, the defense industrial complex is, is a reflection of society. Uh, and I remember uh, talking to uh, the, the great Hans Mark uh, many years ago, and his concern was Are we building, are American engineers the, you know, he said often in uh, engineering departments and scientific uh, institutions, you find that the top students are foreign and that's not a problem if they stay in the United States, but it is a problem if the Chinese student goes back to China or the Indian student goes back to India, uh, or I I dare say, right, the Greek student goes back to Greece. Um, at, At the end of the day, do we have the right talent in the right places and do we have a right national structure? to create the engineering and scientific talent that the nation needs for the future. Because I think on any casual reading of it, we're looking for people from abroad to come with their best ideas here to see capital, to develop their ideas. But then again, some of these folks go back home, right? And and so how, how do we need to think about this as a broader talent management ecosystem? Because it's not clear to me that we're as good as we need to be or think that we are. Given how technology is being leveled globally, you,
1: you know, I, I think you are uh, you're poking at a, an age old problem, uh, Vago. So uh, you know, if you think back to the uh, the days of the atom bomb, right, <laughs> uh, we uh, we absolutely you know took advantage and leveraged the uh, the expertise of foreign scientists, and you know, in, in many ways, uh, I I think we wouldn't have gotten, um, you know, we wouldn't have gotten the bomb nearly as uh, as 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 quickly as we did, had it not been for that. So I think I, I don't even
0: think we would have gotten it if it wasn't for uh, you know Leo Slizard, Hans Bethe, uh, Fermi. Uh, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. That's right. right.
1: That's right. So you know, I mean, there is a great big statue at the uh, you know the Hudson River in New York City, and says you know send me uh, send me your dispossessed. You know, this is who right. we are, right? So uh, we. You know, the greatness of our nation, of our country, of our, you know, our democracy is that this is a place where people are united by a set of ideas, as opposed to a, uh, uh, you know, ethnic backgrounds or, you know, uh, shared history or even a shared language in some ways. You know, I'm not, I, you know, as you pointed out, I was born in Greece, um, you know, the place where we, you know, we invented democracy, but I got to tell you, you know, if you were to move to Greece tomorrow and, you know, live there for too many years, you would never be Greek. Um, you know, my children are Americans, um, right. you know, first generation. Here you become American. Why? Because we are united by ideas. We're defined by ideas. So honestly, I couldn't care less about, you know, what somebody's passport says. If they're here, um, you know, if, if they've been educated in our great universities and they want to stay here to make a contribution, um, you know, roll out the red carpet. You know, come join us. Um, I, you know, I, I, I know that you know. In in the past, there've been you know proposals, for example, to offer automatically green cards to uh, to graduates, to PhD graduates uh, in STEM subjects. I think that's a terrific idea. I again, I will say that you know we are united by ideas. If anybody wants to be part of this great American experiment, they're going to be here and contribute. Um, hey, <laughs> please come along. You know, um, that's that, I think that's the way I see it. I, I, I do think that yeah, in our business in particular, you know, in the, the Department of Defense, we um, you know we do have uh, additional kind of wickets right we um, you know we would require uh, background checks we need kind of clearances right. but you know as somebody who um, you know who was born in a different country and uh, has been able to make a contribution you know at this high level inside of the Department of Defense everything uh, is um, is doable I mean you know this great nation of ours you know has has gotten um, has gotten this down to an art. So, um, you know, come join us, make a contribution. You know, um, but, do- doors are wide open.
0: Um, uh, we have a couple of seconds left, but do we have the right talent in the right places across the department, right? I mean, Dr. Kendall, at least as an engineer, uh, was a West Point graduate, spent time in acquisition and understands uh, technology. Obviously, was at and and in the organization uh, for many years and served in a number of other capacities. More broadly, is the department doing... As good of a job and does it have to do a better job to recruit engineering and scientific talent, cultivate it, promote it, and make sure that uh, as we go into an ever more technological age, there are enough people who understand. We, We can argue also that one of the reasons these programs have taken longer is we don't have as many people who are as engineering savvy at senior levels to be able to do some of these gatekeeping decisions and not seek unobtainium when right, I mean, you know, scientists and engineers have a tendency of knowing what the art of the possible is. As you said, C 2 is perfectly doable. If we can get over the, the, the inner service challenges and everything else, it's an achievable thing technologically. The, the whole issue is how we, we manage to harness all the other pieces of it. Do we have the, the right technology in the right places?
1: Well, so the right you know,
0: people in the right place, Excuse me, talent. It,
1: it's 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 both a priority of mine, but luckily for me, it's also a priority for uh for Mr. Kendall that we should increase the number of scientists and engineers inside of the department. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind or his mind, I think, about the need to have um, more scientists and engineers. But also, it's not about just about having more. It's about having them in the right places. You know, today, you know, most of our science and engineers are either in the Air Force Research Lab as civilians or in the acquisition world. Uh, they're not out there in the wings, um, you know, helping people, um, you know, um, use technology to solve the problems that they have there and then. So I, I, I'm actually excited about the number of things that are going on in that regard. Um, you know, we, uh, we started uh, the so-called uh, Project ARC uh, about a year ago, where we, we actually take uh, uniform scientists and engineers and we deploy them to operational wings where they work, you know, side by side with military forces to solve technical problems. And, you know, the work that they do is absolutely amazing. You can see you know, how you can really transform um, you know, the way that the wing works by having some resident, you know, scientists and engineers. I'm going to give you an example, you know, today, you know, if, if a pilot is in distress in a um, you know, in, in a keyboard that's filling up in a in a cockpit that is filling up with smoke, um, it's really hard to get them out. Well, these guys were able to, you know, to create an amazing kind of slider system within, I don't know, within weeks. Um, so that, you know, you can slide a pilot out and you know, a smidgen of the time that it right. would take to do it otherwise. Uh, you right. know, things like, you know, um, taking, um, you know, emitters that we use in bases, you know, for testing and we have to wheel 50 miles into, um, you know, into a depot to, uh, to have them, um, you know, uh, charged and controlled and then put them out of the range again. Well, now you can do that remotely. So, you know, this is innovation really at the, you know, at, at the cutting edge where it is that matters. But then, you know, one other thing that I really wanted to, uh, you know, to footstomp here for is the, uh, the kind of battle lab concept. You know, you remember, you know, we used to have battle labs uh, right. within our ACC, within our uh, air, air combat uh, command. Um, we have started creating a new kind of kind of battle lab. We'll call it the, the Federal Warfare Systems Lab, um, where you really put... Um, the development of the technology itself inside the inside the wing so you know they they are completely and utterly integrated and you know honestly right. they can do things in the small months that take years and maybe that's a topic that we can follow up uh, on it uh, at some point in the future but you know that's where the magic really happens um i you know i am um I'm excited about both the, uh, the opportunity to bring in more folks uh, with science and engineering backgrounds, but also to deploy them in the right places inside of the, inside of the department where they can help us. Uh,
0: Dr. Coleman, uh, thank you very much. It was an honor and pleasure having you on. You are welcome on anytime. So, if you wanted to come on and talk about any other subordinate topic, uh, you are welcome to do so. We wanted to do uh, this uh, sort of wave top conversation. Uh, to really set the foundation for some of the coverage we're going to be doing over the coming uh, months and across the next year. And so I appreciate it very much. And I have to also give a shout out uh, to J. Robert, Robert Oppenheimer, Van Ever Bush, uh, Loomis, uh, Lawrence, <laughs> Com, right? I mean, there were a lot of uh, brilliant Americans, but there were also a lot of brilliant uh, Australians and Brits, right? I mean, the program really was two balloys when it came to the United States. So uh, it, it was a collective effort, but I don't think we could have done it, uh, obviously, if we if we didn't have, uh, fortunately, Nazi Germany uh, wanting to turn its back on what it called Jewish physics. So luckily for us, <laughs> uh, Heisenberg. Yeah, there you the talent, right. there uh, And go. Right? Exactly. And we got it. Uh, Dr. Coleman, thanks so much again. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on again soon.
1: Real pleasure. I'm grateful to have the opportunity, Vago.